We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. We're glad that you're here this morning. Our scripture reading today is found in Ezekiel again, and we're over in chapter 40. We left off in the middle of the chapter last time. We're getting a few too many dimensions of the new temple, the millennial temple, so we We'll pick up at verse number 28, the text of Ezekiel 40 and 28 says, Then he brought me to the inner court through the southern gateway. Uh, He is this uh, angelic being, uh, bronze in appearance, and brought me, me being Ezekiel, to the inner court through the southern gateway. And he measured the southern gateway according to these same measurements. Also, its gate chambers, its gate posts, and its archways were according to these same measurements. There were windows in it and in its archways all around. It was 50 cubits long and 25 cubits wide. There were archways all around, 25 cubits long and 5 cubits wide. Its archways faced the outer court. Palm trees were on its gate posts, and going up to it were eight steps. And he brought me into the inner court facing east, and he measured the gateway according to the same measurements. Also, its gate chambers, its gate posts, and its archways were according to these same measurements, and there were windows in it and in its archways all around. It was 50 cubits long and 25 cubits wide. Its archways faced the outer court, and palm trees were on its gate posts on this side and on that side, and going up to it were eight steps. Then he brought me to the north gateway and measured it according to these same measurements, also its gate chambers, its gate posts, and its archways. It had windows all around. Its length was 50 cubits and its width 25. Its gate posts faced the outer court. Palm trees were on its gate posts on this side and on that side, and going up to it were eight steps. There was a chamber and its entrance by the gate posts of the gateway where they washed the burnt offering. In the vestibule of the gateway were two tables on this side and two tables on that side on which to slay the burnt offering, the sin offering, and the trespass offering. At the outer side of the vestibule, as one goes up to the entrance of the northern gateway, there were two tables, and on the, one, on the other side of the vestibule of the gateway were two tables. Four tables were on this side and four tables on that side by the side of the gateway, eight tables on which they slaughtered the sacrifices. There were also four tables of hewn stone for the burnt offering, one cubit and a half long, one cubit and a half wide, and one cubit high. On these they laid the instruments with which they slaughtered the burnt offering and the sacrifice. Inside were hooks, a hand breadth wide, fastened all around, and the flesh of the sacrifices was on the tables. Outside the inner gate were the chambers for the singers in the inner court, one facing south at the side of the northern gateway and the other facing north at the side of the southern gateway. Then he said to me, This chamber which faces south is for the priests who have charge of the temple. The chamber which faces north is for the priests who have charge of the altar. These are the sons of Zadok from the sons of Levi who come near the Lord to minister to him. And he measured the court 100 cubits long and 100 cubits wide, four square. 
The altar was in front of the temple. Then he brought me to the vestibule of the temple and measured the doorposts of the vestibule, five cubits on this side and five cubits on that side. And the width of the gateway was three cubits on this side and three on that side. The length of the vestibule was 20 cubits and the width 11 cubits. And by the steps which led up to it, there were pillars by the doorposts, one on this side and another on that side. Again, remember we said last time that all these dimensions are given not to make the temple metaphorical, but to make it detailed and show just how beautiful and how ornate it's going to be when uh, the Millennial Temple is built and is in operation. The other question that always arises is, well, what about the sacrifices? How does that make sense to have sacrifices? Is this a past temple? Is this future? Well, the answer is it's future, and there will be sacrifices there, but why is a question we'll leave for another time. We've addressed that question in times past from this pulpit, but maybe it's occurred to you again to ask that same question. We'll, we'll deal with that another time. Before we begin a new series uh, uh, in, in the exposition of Scripture this morning, I wanted to share with you something about the holiday today. It's not really a holy day, but it's a national kind of thing. And um, let me just collect my thoughts for a moment. It's not the holiday you're thinking of. On Freedom's Eve, or the eve of January 1, 1863, watch night services took place. On that night, enslaved and free African Americans gathered in churches and private homes all across the country awaiting news that the Emancipation Proclamation had taken effect. At the stroke of midnight, prayers were answered as all enslaved people in Confederate states were declared legally free. Union soldiers, many of whom were black, marched onto plantations and across cities in the South, reading small copies of the Emancipation Proclamation, spreading the news of freedom in Confederate states. Only through the 13th Amendment did emancipation and slavery throughout the states. But not everyone in Confederate territory would immediately be free. Even though the Emancipation Proclamation was made effective in 1863, it could not be implemented in places still under Confederate control. As a result, in the westernmost Confederate state of Texas, enslaved people would not be free until much later. Freedom finally came on June 19, 1865, when some 2,000 Union troops arrived in Galveston Bay, Texas, The army announced that the more than 250,000 enslaved black people in the state were free by executive decree. This day came to be known as the combination of June 19th or Juneteenth by the newly freed people in Texas. After that began the period that we know as Reconstruction in the South. That's a kind of a second Independence Day, isn't it? Yeah. And... uh, June 19th, I'd rather call it instead of Juneteenth myself, like Emancipation Day or Freedom Day or something like that, uh, in remembrance of that uh, long-awaited and long-overdue event in the history of the United States. So while we celebrate Father's Day today, let's not forget this other important historical occurrence which may not have come onto your radar screen. It certainly hadn't, you know, kind of come onto mine lately. You know, we've all read about the Emancipation Proclamation, I suppose. We should have if we had had, had a decent education. But uh, the, 
the devil was in the details of implementation, wasn't it? It's not just so easy to say the slaves are free. There were some people who were dead set fighting against that. And so some changes had to be made, obviously, for that to uh, actually be implemented. So uh, June 19th, Emancipation Day, uh, for a number, many thousands of our fellow citizens and countrymen. We pause on that note and turn our Bibles, please, to the book of Jonah. If you would open your Bible and find Jonah, uh, you're going to be looking at the end of your Old Testament, uh, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. Keep going. Joel, I said I say Joel, Amos, Obadiah. Keep going, keep going. Jonah. <laughs> I was already there, but humor me as I guide some that may be less familiar with it. And by the way, if you do have, please do be opening your Bible to this passage and be looking at it. Um, this is a Bible church. I expect that you would have a Bible and you'd be using the Bible. Amen. We're introducing Jonah today, and uh, we'll find out among other things, that it is a very bad idea to disobey God. It's a bad idea. Now, the extent of many people's knowledge of the book of Jonah and its theology is expressed in the song attributed to Ron Hamilton, for, with, with which you're familiar. You know, where it says, Come and listen to my fearful tale of the ocean blue, how a man got swallowed by a whale. Yes, I know it's true. Jonah, Jonah did not obey God immediately. Jonah, Jonah, down in the depths of the deep blue sea. And there's another verse to that, which you can see there. I'm not going to criticize this little ditty because what it says, in as much as it says, is not incorrect. It expresses the historical event of Jonah's flight from God, his disobedience, his prayer, God's omniscience. Uh, later on in the, uh, in the second chorus, if you try to run from God, beware. You'll discover, too, that the Lord above is everywhere, watching all you do. I believe, however, that this uh, song is, would be incomplete if you wanted to use it as a summary of the message of the prophet Jonah. There's a whole lot more to this little book than of four chapters than your Sunday school lesson uh, might indicate or your Sunday school memory of it. And so we're going to just dig in a little bit deeper than that here in the next few weeks, God willing, as we look at this prophet and think about what he has to tell us. The book of Jonah was probably written sometime between 793 and 753 B.C., so nearly 800 years before Christ, or 750 anyway, during the reign of Jeroboam II, not Jeroboam I. He was way back before that, generations earlier. This Jeroboam II was the 14th out of 20 kings in the northern kingdom. Hosea and Amos would be roughly contemporaries with Jonah, probably not exactly, but perhaps they overlapped. Jonah is sent to the north and to the east, to the people of Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. Now, that was an odd circumstance. It was not usual for God to send a prophet to another place in order to have them prophesy in the sense of, uh, well, like, Many times God had Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah prophesy against other nations 
but it wasn't that they had to go to that nation and then proclaim against it and then go to another nation and make a proclamation against that one. They would do so from their home territory. Jonah came, it says here, uh, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Uh, He came from a northern region of Israel. Uh, In 2 Kings 14.25, it says this. Uh, In fact, I'll just go there, 2 Kings 14 and verse number 25. It says, now he, that is Jeroboam II, restored the territory of Israel from the entrance of Hamath to the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he had spoken through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath-Hefer, Gath-Hefer. Jonah evidently had more prophetic ministry than just what we read about in the book of Jonah with his uh, problem with the fish and going to Nineveh and all of that. Uh, His homeland was Gath-Hefer. Now, where is Gath-Hefer? Well, this is a little interesting side note to the story. Uh, This is not the same as Gath. Do you remember Gath, that name, G-A-T-H? How about if I say Goliath of Gath? That's a Philistine area, and what we would know is the Gaza Strip, roughly in that area. Uh, but uh, this, the, the Bible mentions uh, Gath-Hefer in Joshua 19.13 as one of the border towns of Zebulun, the tribe of Zebulun, their tribal inheritance. Gath-Hefer was on the southern end of that um, property, if you will, that land part of Israel, and it was about 60 miles north of Jerusalem. So if you're thinking in your mind, uh, think about Jerusalem and the Israelite map, and then uh, think of the, sea, the Dead Sea and up the Jordan River to the Sea of Galilee, the southern end of the Sea of Galilee. Just go over a little bit to the west, 60 miles north of Jerusalem, and you'll come to a place called Gath-Hefer. That was a nearby town to another famous town in the same region called Nazareth. Jesus was a prophet also, more than a prophet, of course, from Galilee, the town of Nazareth, which was neighbor to Gath-Hefer. But the reputation of that place was not good. Remember what, what was it Nathaniel said? Can any good thing come out of Nazareth, out of Galilee, out of that place? John 1.46 records that, if you want to look at that. And the Pharisees opined to Nicodemus that no prophet has ever come out of Galilee because they were criticizing Jesus and Nicodemus, but they were wrong because one of the most well-known prophets in Israelite history came out of Galilee region, Jonah. The human author of the book likely was Jonah himself, even though he writes in the third person here, maybe with some level of embarrassment. Uh, You've had those situations before that you kind of want to distance yourself from yourself. Maybe uh, that has happened in your life. I've had that happen in my life. The details included in the book about Jonah's inner thoughts, his prayers, his anger against God, his interactions with God are most easily explained if the book is autobiographical. 
That may be that it was written by somebody else, but they had to have such intimate knowledge of Jonah's inner thoughts and circumstances that they must have been very close to the prophet if it were someone else. And in any case, its place in the canon of Scripture is not denied. It's not questions by theologians who have a high view of Scripture. I want to spend a moment on the uh, fish story, as we call it. Uh, In verse 17, as you know, the most famous part of this, uh, well-known, is that the Lord prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Over the years, I have run into accounts, something similar to this. I'll share with you three of them this morning. This actually is not the most important part of the story, you know. This is just a vehicle for God to get something done with his prophet that needed to be done. But it's the most recognizable and the most ridiculed, probably. God, however, certainly is able to sustain a man through these uh, unusual circumstances and the kind of situation described in the verse that I just read. Christians embrace the entirety of Scripture, do we not? Christians embrace it. So this portion is not particularly problematic for us. I mean... Once you know you've got a God who created all things out of nothing, parted the Red Sea, can raise a man from the dead, and so on and so forth, this is not that big of a deal uh, because he is infinite and omnipotent and omniscient and the uncaused cause of all things. This is not problematic. And in fact, it's doubly certain for us because if you remember, we've just been in Matthew's gospel in chapter 12 and 16, also Luke 11. Jesus himself says, no sign is going to be given to this generation except the sign of what? The prophet Jonah. As he was three days and nights in the heart of the fish, in the heart of the sea, so the Son of Man is going to be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And then he will, again, as we know, emerge from that. So, it's good enough for me if Jesus takes the story to be literal history. I hope it's good enough for you as well. Now, in June of 2021, not even, uh, well, just about a year ago, I guess, a man named Michael Packard in his 50s, was a lobster diver, was briefly swallowed by a humpback whale. You might have heard that story. The, the, uh, he was very thankful that that whale does not have large, sharp teeth. Uh, The Cape Cod, that's supposed to be uh, spelled C-O-D, Times reported on the incident June 11th, shortly after it happened. He was spit out of the mouth of the whale after 30 to 40 seconds. Now, he was a diver who was going to the bottom uh, of the sea there where it wasn't too uh, deep, I guess, and uh, looking for uh, his his, uh, livelihood with the lobsters. Um, but as he almost got down to the bottom, he felt himself suddenly swallowed up into something and it was completely dark. Now, he had on breathing apparatus and uh, he began to struggle inside of this thing. And uh, fortunately also for him, the esophagus of this particular whale is not large enough to swallow a man, so he couldn't go down into the digestive tract of this thing. But the, uh, the whale did not like the feeling of this odd object in his mouth because it usually would just go along and pick up, you know, krill or plankton or whatever, small little uh, things and and, uh, filter them out and and swallow them down. So uh, he sustained relatively minor injuries, had to be hospitalized, but uh, no no much worse for the wear. 
I think that particular fellow, if I recall, also suffered some years earlier a plane crash in which several people had died and he survived. So uh, he's, got to, uh, he's got to recognize God has kept him alive for, for some reason. Anyway, he was in this whale, they say, for 30 to 40 seconds, enough to be terrified. But when the, when the whale breached, the others who were on the surface saw him get flung out of the mouth of this uh, humpback whale. The New England Historical Society reports of a man named Peleg Nye. That's a biblical name there, Peleg, isn't it? Who in November 16th of 1864 was grabbed by a sperm whale, which his crewmates and he were hunting. He nearly died after the whale took him down under the water and he took water into his lungs. And uh, they took a long time to revive this poor fellow once he came back up to the surface, thankfully. Uh, they were in the process of hunting and killing that, that whale for the, the oil in it. And then there was another fellow in 1816, a Quaker named Edmund Gardner, who had a similar experience. He was left with a crushed hand that was never functional after that, uh, other teeth wounds on his skull, his collarbone, and his arm. Now, for me, those are fascinating stories, and it didn't take much effort to find just those three within the last 200 years. I'm sure in the last 2,500 years, there must be similar stories because men have been uh, uh, traversing the high seas looking for such animals for a long, long time and encountering them in their, in their travels. But all similar situations are measured by this one, the biblical prophecy in Jonah. And also, I didn't put this in my notes, but don't take me to be saying that by finding a bunch of natural explanations of this, you know, somebody in the fish for 30 seconds like that automatically, you know, just makes uh, the three-day journey of Jonah in this fish to be explainable, uh, to be, uh, you know, to take away any supernatural aspect of it. That's not my intention whatsoever. But if you were to think that these situations are rare, they are rare, but they're not unheard of with just those few in the last couple of hundred years. <clears throat> We start out then reading about Jonah's commission in verses 1 and 2. The word of the Lord came. That's a very common phrase in the prophets. You see the exact same phrase to Samuel, to Jeremiah, to Ezekiel. It's a longer version of the phrase, the word of the Lord came, which introduces about 100 prophecies in the Old Testament to Abram, Jehu, Elijah, Isaiah, Haggai, Zechariah. And it's most often used in the book of Ezekiel. The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel or to the Son of Man there, as we've been reading. Now, God gave Jonah some very specific instructions. First of all, he said, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. This was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. This city existed from ancient times. In fact, uh, the Bible mentions it in Genesis chapter 10 under the... Uh, in the section about Nimrod, the mighty hunter, who built this place, among others. It was evidently a huge city at this time. If you look at chapter 4 and verse 11, uh, there's an indication here of the size of it. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot distinguish between their right hand and their left and much livestock? We'll talk about that size and the number there later on when we get to chapter 4. Um, but it was a large city, many thousands of residents. 
uh, when God says, arise, go to Nineveh, I personally do not take these two verbs as two major separate actions that must be done. Obviously, if Jonah was sitting down, he had to get up, arise, and go to the place where he had to go. But I, th- I think that they express one singular idea, which is this, get up and go. Do what I've told you to do. Of course, Jonah had to physically move from the place uh, where he was to the place of his ministry in this particular case. But we have an example that's kind of similar to this, actually, in Matthew 28, 19, where the Lord says, go and make disciples. Now, for some people, that means physically moving. But for most of you, it doesn't mean physically moving like moving your domicile, moving your house, moving your address. But, of course, some do. But Christians are to get up and do something about making disciples, whether it's traveling across the world or across the hallway in your apartment or across the street to your neighbor or across the driveway or talking to them across the fence. I'm not suggesting here that Jonah had an Old Testament version of the Great Commission because he wasn't told to go make disciples. He was told to go proclaim judgment against this nation and whatever happened after that happened. But you get my point when we say go and make disciples. You don't get hung up on, okay, first I've got to go somewhere. And if I don't go somewhere, then I'm disobedient. No, you're disobedient if you don't get up and do something about making disciples across the street or across the world or across the ocean. Do make disciples. We talked about that last week. That's one of our big ticket items, if you will, here as we exist as the church. Now, the second instruction God gave to Jonah was, he says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it. We've alluded to why this or what he was supposed to do to proclaim against it, meaning its inhabitants. He's not proclaiming against a city in the abstract, but against the people in the city. I'll throw this in here just to really stir you up, but uh, you know, this, when you talk about a city, you're not talking about this kind of abstract notion of the city government as disconnected from its people. What is a city? It's a group of people. If, if God said, go uh, proclaim against um, uh, General Motors, it's not like he's talking about the abstract notion of a legal entity, an LLC or a a corporation called General Motors. He's talking about the people. What is the corporation but the group of people that make it up? That's what he's talking about. Preach, proclaim against these individuals. And he gave a reason for it. Do you see the reason? You're looking at the text of Scripture there. You see the reason? For their wickedness has come up before me. Now, I... I took note of that because the world is full of wickedness all the time. But sometimes, so there's a general smelliness to the world in God's nostrils. But sometimes there is a particularly bad stench to God. The wickedness of the city had risen to heaven and it had caught God's special attention. Evil everywhere is not really noteworthy. 
you know, we get all bent out of shape about it sometimes, but you know what? It's just normal because of the human nature, because of sin in the world. But when there are particularly bad things going on, the stench is notable to God. In Exodus 3.7, he tells Moses, the oppression of your people has come before me. I see the affliction of the people of Israel. Back before that in Genesis 6.5, God saw that the intents of the hearts of man was what? Only evil continually. It was a particularly bad time because of the structure of the society as it was left after the fall and God decided to judge the earth with a flood. The stench again arose before God from Nineveh. How just, uh, just how evil was this place? Well, after Jonah's writing sometime in 722 B.C., they would take the northern tribes captive and decimate that part of Israel. In 701, they invaded the southern kingdom and troubled Hezekiah. Do you remember that? Isaiah 36 and 37 records that. Hezekiah brings it to uh, Isaiah. They bring it before the Lord. The Lord protects them and uh, sends Sennacherib back to his homeland, and uh, he eventually is killed by his sons there in that place. Prior to these events occurring, they have been, as one author called them by this name, the appalling lords of torture. They impaled people. They skinned them. They did amputations. They invented crucifixion. They beheaded them. They burned them alive. And they made carved murals depicting these events that you can see today, pictures of, as they boasted about their terrorism. That's what it was. It was part of their campaign of terror to subdue their enemies so that people would hear of the atrocities that they would do. And they would come, their, their army would come up to a city, and if the city didn't surrender, they would do these things to them. But oftentimes the city would just surrender right away because they didn't want to have anything to do with that kind of devastation. And they would be carried off and sent somewhere else. Jonah is called to this place, and he knows all of this. Sometimes God's people are called to go to evil places in order to minister the gospel, or in this case, to minister a word of judgment against the city. Jonah 3, verse 4, it says, Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's what his message was to be. In our case, we don't have a one-sided message like that. Listen to this. This message is the message that we proclaim, just using words that you might not have anticipated me to use. In Romans eleven twenty-two. Consider the goodness and the severity of God. On those who fell, severity, but toward you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. So we have a message that's not one-sided like you'll be destroyed, but if you don't repent, you'll be destroyed. But if you do, behold the goodness of God. You see that? A positive side of the message, not just the negative side. Romans eleven twenty-two. And so that's, the, that's what God uh, tells Jonah to do. I might pause here. It's not in your notes either, but ask you the question, what has God told you to do? 
It's as clear as this, isn't it? It's in the Bible. You've heard it preached. You've read it many times. What has God commanded you? What has he commissioned you to do? We've talked about one already. One big aspect is the Great Commission. Are you like, are you obeying that? Or are you going to be like Jonah? Where it says in verse 3, but Jonah arose not to go to Nineveh, but to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and he went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Instead of going to Nineveh, to the northeast, he went to the southwest, almost 180 degrees opposite of where he was supposed to be going on his compass. Tarshish may have been in Spain. I've tended to believe that on the other side of the Mediterranean, but it's not 100% certain. Wherever it was, it was not next door to Nineveh. Now, Jonah thought, this is Jonah, uh, he thought he would flee from God's presence. Well, what does the Scripture have to say about that matter? Psalm 139 Verses 9 and 10. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light around me. Hmm. If I ascend to heaven, you're there. Verse 8 says, if I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you're there. Where, verse 7, I'm backing up now, where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? We find that a great comfort, don't we, in certain times, God's always present, but other times we might not like that idea too much. Jonah didn't care for it at this time. He thought he would flee from God's presence. I say to him, good luck. And since there's no such thing as luck (laughs) and God is omnipresent, There's no hope for Jonah's doomed attempt to get away from God. You can try to run from God. You can try to ignore God. You can try to plug your ears from God, you know, make that noise that kids make, you know, plug their ears. No, 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 I'm not hearing you. I'm not hearing you. You can try it all you want. But God's not fooled. And he'll get through to you one way or the other. Just desire to do so. He knows just how to do it. To implement his plan, Jonah went down to Joppa. It's from the Hebrew word, uh, verb, yarad, to go down. He paid the fare for the boat, and then he he went down into the boat. In verse 5, the text tells us that he had gone down into the hold of the ship, his physical direction, down, 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 mirrored his spiritual declension. Later in chapter 2, verse 6, look at this. I went down to the moorings of the mountains, the foundations of the earth, he says, poetically speaking. He was down in the depths of the sea in this fish. His life had gone down, down, down. Now, what happens if you find yourself, if, if you're like the prodigal son, The prodigal son who came to his senses, what did he do? He said, I've I've sinned against heaven and against you. 
He goes to his father. I'm going to get out of here. I'm going to go there. I'm going to tell him that I'm not worthy to be called his son. Exercise great repentance, great humility. Wanted to just be restored to some level of closeness to the father. Not to his sonship that he had before, but just to be a servant. Just to get out of the mess that he was in. The best thing to do if you come to your senses as you are going down, 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 is to turn around immediately and go back up. Turn around immediately and go back up. Okay, you know, you know in your heart of hearts when you're walking away from God, some matter in your life, some desire, some perverse thing, some anger, some hatred, some whatever. And you say to yourself, what am I doing? What am I doing? Turn yourself right around 180 degrees and go back to where you should be going. Do the thing that you're supposed to do. Repent of the sin that you've been involved in. God will welcome you back, just like the father welcomed the prodigal son. Jonah should have turned around at every opportunity. I'm getting out of this ship. I don't care that I lost the fare. I'm going to get out of Joppa. I'm going to go back to my home country, which is on my way to Nineveh. That's what he should have done. Now, why did Jonah flee from God? Obviously, he didn't want to do the job, but why? Well, I'm not sure that I could say for sure 100%, but I, I don't, it didn't cross my mind to say, you know, maybe he was afraid to go there, like they were going to kill him. Um, I don't get that, I don't have that feeling that that's necessarily the case, although it could enter into it, of course. These people are evil. They are Gentiles. They're pagan idolaters. Can I say without offending anybody, they are dogs. That's how a Jewish person would look at a pagan unbeliever like this. If nothing good could come out of Nazareth, it was ten times worse out of Nineveh. I suspect that there was some ethnocentrism or racism on the part of Jonah. He wanted them to be judged by God because they deserved it. There are wicked sinners. We will see later how angry Jonah was when they repented and God delayed his judgment. You know, Jonah's like, man, I really wanted to see that city burn. And he didn't. By the way, you and I deserve God's judgment, don't we? Thanks be to God for his mercy. I wonder if there are some people for whom we are like Jonah and we think of them like they're Ninevites, people whom we really would not care to see saved, people who we would love to see judged. Would we refuse to witness to those people? You know, their lifestyle is so perverse, I am not going to have anything to do with them. Yeah, how are they going to hear the gospel? You, 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 you only like certain kinds of sinners, but not other kinds of sinners? Is that how you think? Or is some of your, you know, you get too immersed into politics and some of the people on the other side of the aisle, you'd just rather see them dead. And hell? Or do you care for their soul? 
I just ran into that yesterday. Somebody had that. Wishing for them, their enemies, their, their political foes to be gone, dead. Are we really like Jesus if we think like that? Absolutely not. That's a rhetorical question. We come then to verse number four and God's punishment for Jonah. And I just make this note here. Be sure to know that if you're disobedient to God, God will have something to say about that. He did to Jonah. You cannot simply disregard God's instruction and get away with it. The chastisement or discipline may not come right away. It may come mixed with conviction and mercy and very gently leading you to the right path, or it may come on strongly to get your attention. And this is the latter here is Jonah's case. The text is clear in verse 4, But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. God sent this difficult weather to these ocean goers and their passenger Jonah. You know, in modern kind of language, we just leave God out of it. You know, like the weather. We, we blame the weatherman for the weather. It's his fault. You know, he didn't get it right. And, and the Hebrew mind wasn't so concerned about, you know, the, the effect of the weather because of the low pressure which came from here and the climate this and the climate change that and all these intermediate causes that could be involved in the climate. They just attributed it directly to God who made the climate because that's ultimately where the cause comes from in the beginning, isn't it? You say, well, God sent the sunshine for us today. The scientist will say, well, actually, you know, that's because of the high pressure system and the low humidity and blah, blah, blah. You're like, no, God gave us the sunshine today. And when, he, when it rains, the rain. And when, when a tornado comes through, Dexter, say, then, well, God sent the whirlwind for some reason. And so you, you don't have to, you know, criticize the ancient mind, which I don't think was dumb at all. I think was very smart. But they would recognize God in the midst of the circumstances of the world. The ones who are dumb are us, who leave God out of the circumstances in the world, aren't we? And so God sent this uh, great wind out to them uh, and uh, was ordained by God. The storm was so severe that these experienced sailors undoubtedly were, were fearful that the ship would break up and sink to the bottom and they would drown. So they made use of the means at their disposal. I was just speaking with somebody who saw one of the ships uh, that was out on Lake Superior scouring the lake in 1975, was it, for the Edmund Fitzgerald in November. And uh, a great gale came upon Lake Superior, and I think that ship got up crosswise on top of a huge wave and just cracked in half, went to the bottom, and 29 men perished. These men were afraid that that would be their destiny. So they used natural means, number one. They threw everything overboard that they could. You know, they wanted more buoyancy, right? That's what you would do in the Navy. Now, you probably didn't run into a situation like this on those huge boats, right? Not quite. But anyways, uh, and what, what else do you do? You pray while you're throwing stuff overboard, right? So they're out there 
you know, natural means, throwing stuff overboard, supernatural, God, help us, but they were praying to their God's lower case. We spoke about this also yesterday, very interesting. You know, there are no other gods but one. People pretend that there are other gods. There are demons, to be sure. There are demons that masquerade as gods and have great power, but there are no thing, nothing else other than the true God of heaven. And so they called out to their gods as if they existed to see if they could help them. Meanwhile, Jonah was clueless below deck. How he could be sleeping deeply in such a situation as this, I have no idea. It says in verse uh, verse 5 at the end, he was in the lowest parts of the ship, had lain down and was fast asleep. For me, I would be so motion sick, I'd be finished. I mean, it'd be over, game over. Um, he was fast asleep. I wonder why, I just speculated as to why that is. Perhaps he was physically tired from his fleeing from God mentally exhausted from disobeying God and trying to justify that in his mind, traveling to Joppa, finding a ship there, getting onto the ship and trying to get out of Dodge as quickly as he could. Some have said it like this. He was fleeing the hounds of heaven. God was chasing after him. He knew in his mind what he should be doing. And those hounds don't let go easily, do they? They keep on barking and keep on chasing in your conscience until you get right with God and thank Him for that. Amen. We do thank Him for that. I pray that those hounds are, are hounding you if you are not walking rightly with God. The desperate situation on the sea led the captain to find their stowaway and appeal to him to call on his God as well. And I put lowercase there because to this captain, he didn't know anything about the true God. He's just saying, hey, we're all doing this, praying to our gods. Maybe your God, lowercase, will get the job done for us. We're desperate here, guy. Help us out. As far as the captain was concerned, Jonah's God was no different than all the other gods in his crew. We know, of course, that Jonah's God is the true God of the Bible. So when they got a few moments, on the, maybe thrown everything overboard, they decided to use the game of chance to determine who the at-fault person was. So they're going to roll the dice. They're going to uh, draw straws, so to speak. Actually, the Bible says they cast lots, verse 7, that we may know for whom, whose cause this trouble has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So, you know, the guy holding the ten straws or however many there were, and Jonah's left holding the smallest one or whatever, the, however they did it. We don't know exactly how they cast lots, but... They drew cards and Jonah got the joker or whatever. Um, we don't know exactly how they did that, but it doesn't matter because Jonah was found out. I mean, he's like, I'm finished. <laughs> why, couldn't, why couldn't the lot have taken some other guy and blamed it on him? Now, this is no way to determine God's will today. You don't cast lots today. We, we do see an example of an Acts chapter uh, 1 where they selected one to replace Judas. Remember, the disciples, uh, the apostles, selected one to replace Judas. But uh, God was pleased in this circumstance to point the finger using the lot at the wayward prophet. Of course, how do, you, how do we determine God's guidance today? We know the Word of God. We get good godly counsel and those sorts of things, but we don't you know, put out fleeces and, and cast lots and that sort of thing. 
Once Jonah was selected, the sailors wanted to know everything about him. They said, please tell us, verse 8, for whose cause is this trouble come upon us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? Of what people are you? They want to know everything. If he's the guy that's at fault, then they've got to know everything about him so they can figure out a way out of this. So Jonah answered in verse number 9, and he said, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord. Well, he now fears the Lord. He should have feared the Lord before that. The God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. He resides up there in heaven. He made the sea and the dry land. And in verse 10, we're not going to fully get to all of this, but he, he had told them what was going on. The men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, Why have you done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So it's a little bit of a, uh, the text is taken a bit out of chronological order for the interest of, the, of how the story is told. But he, he said at the same time, you know, I'm a Hebrew and all this. I'm fleeing from God. Well, that was it for the sailors. Because the God who made the sea was angry at Jonah. And the God who made the sea is the same as the God who controls the sea. And they were in a bad way. The fearful mariners asked Jonah, why in the world did you do this? Out of the mouth of pagans. Look at the situation. The unbelievers on this boat recognize that if you say you follow God, and he's this kind of God who made everything, and he told you to go do something, then you should be obeying him. The unbelievers recognize this. How could you not recognize it? It's the same way today. When an unbeliever has a clearer vision of what religion is supposed to do for your conduct, than you as a professing believer in Christ have, then there is a real problem. Do you understand the point? Jonah should have understood. People who misbehave in churches today in such a way that they get on the news and the pagans have higher standards than they do, that is ridiculous. But that's what Jonah was doing. Jonah, oh, how could you? Disobey your God like that. If you say you believe in him, then you better obey him. Don't say and not obey. Major problem, guys, if you say and you do not do, if you walk and you do not talk, it's a very bad idea to disobey God. Jonah found that out just now. We'll see the consequence next time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are asking that you help us to take the example of Jonah and learn from it so that we would not do evil things like he did here. But Lord, also I pray in our few weeks that we have here in the book of Jonah that you will help us to understand more than the fish story, that you will help us to understand a deeper message, the, the, the meaning that is being conveyed to us in the big uh, picture of this story, this history, in fact, so that we can be instructed by the prophet more than just about Jonah did not obey God immediately. We should obey immediately, but we should also understand something of the theology of the book, and that will be a great and powerful impact in our lives. Help us to do that, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.